0: Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're visiting here with us today, the ushers have Bibles, and they have a mark in them at the very place in which we're going to be turning. And if you'd like one of those, just wave these men down, and they'll hand one to you, and that is the gift of the church to you. Boy, what a gift it has been for me to worship with you already this morning. Boy, what truth that we just sang. I actually really appreciate That third song, or the fourth song, whatever number song that was, the last song, as we were thinking about here at the last moment, just right before the message, I've always thought of that that song, Speak, O Lord, as the most appropriate introduction to the speaking of the word. Because it is, if sung correctly, not merely a song, but a prayer. And I pray that you were praying that that you were asking the Lord to speak to us today, and and what an appropriate statement that that passage even indicated, or that song indicated, because it spoke of truths that God has given to us from eternity that need to be applied to our hearts. Well, here today, uh, I have the opportunity to speak to you on a passage in 1 Peter, if uh, you've been in the church for a while. Perhaps you come on Wednesday nights. You may have been in the First Peter study that I did. If so, some of this might be a little bit familiar to you. A number of months back, I was asked to come speak during Sunday school hours uh, because uh, there was just a need for that for a couple of weeks. And when I, I did that, I spoke uh, a couple of times on First Peter. Uh, The Lord has given me an opportunity over the last year to be an interim pastor at a church in Belleville, and uh, so that's what uh, I'm actually still preaching there because they meet in the afternoons, so I'll be headed there in just a little bit. But I've been preaching through the book of 1 Peter, and this book has revolutionized my life, and this passage in particular has helped me to think through my life well. And so I'd like to bring it to you this morning. It was already read for us. We begin there in chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't now see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you pray with me as we come to the Lord? Father, we were reminded just a moment ago, that we need you to speak. And so we ask as we asked a moment ago that you would speak, O Lord. I ask as I come to proclaim your word that I would say only those things which are in your word. And I pray as your people hear your word that they would apply it, that they would see how it would impact their lives, and that they would live more faithfully to the gospel you've called them to because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that Christians are weird? All right. Now, I don't say that. And, and by the way, if you thought I was looking at you when I said that, I wasn't. Okay, I wasn't looking at anyone in particular when I, when I said that. But one of the themes of 1 Peter is that we are elect exiles. You see that all the way at the beginning of the passage. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is verse 1. And then he says to God's elect exiles. Now, if you took that 1 Peter course with me, you know that that I think that's a theme of 1 Peter, that we are both chosen by God to great blessing, to a future inheritance that is incredible. And yet, that choosing us to himself makes us different. It makes us exiles. The word can be translated foreigner. And in essence, what Peter is saying is that when you embrace Christ, the Spirit changes you in such a way that you no longer find this world your home. You're a foreigner. And some of you in this congregation have perhaps lived for a period of time. Maybe it was short. Maybe it was long in a foreign culture. Maybe this is your foreign culture. And you know exactly what Peter's saying when he's saying you live as foreigners. It means the, cult, the, the customs you have aren't the customs of the people you live amongst. And their customs aren't your customs, which means that Christians are going to be weird because we live in a world in which it's different than us. And Jesus calls us to this. He tells us that this is exactly what it's going to be. You know, across the globe, there are different cultural customs, and some of these are rather odd. Uh, In Germany, just before couples are wed, there are parts of Germany that do this. The families and close friends meet for an informal affair where... The guests are requested to break things, such as dishes and flower vases, basically nearly everything except glasses. I'm not exactly sure why glasses shouldn't be broken, but apparently they don't do that. And as soon as the place is in total disarray, things everywhere, the couple has to come in and clean it up perfectly. I suppose that's a preparation for marriage. (laughs) And to some extent, I understand that. (laughs) <laughs> in Spain, there's a northern community, just a small one apparently, that takes part in, a, in something they call El Colacho, which if you know Spanish, uh, perhaps that helps you understand what's happening here, it's also called baby jumping, in which to keep the devil at bay, men dressed as the devil run, run between and jump over infants who are on mattresses along the streets. I think I would probably move, let me just be frankly honest. In Greece, apparently when a child loses their tooth, they throw it on the roof. And of course, here we are judging them, saying, well, that's weird. What do we do with our children's teeth, all right? It's even more weird, okay? All right, so we recognize that in any one particular group, there's going to be cultural customs that are a little weird to everyone else. I'm going to suggest today that Christians have a cultural custom. We are elect exiles called out by God to be distinct. And one of the weird things about Christians, one of the weird things about us, is that we are called to, and in fact you may have experienced this, we are called to enjoy, or not enjoy, to rejoice in trial. And that to our world is really weird. And this morning, as we look in 1 Peter chapter 1, what I'd like to express to you is why it is that we should rejoice in our trials. As I look around this congregation today, there are a lot of people in this room. And I know that even if there were a few people in this room, there would be trials happening in people's lives. So I know that there are some of you who are experiencing great and difficult trials right now. And I believe the Lord has this passage For you this morning. So I mentioned a moment ago that this is a cultural custom of Christian people. Why do I say that? Well, notice there are three passages. We just read this one In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you suffer through various forms of grief. But then in James 1 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We'll talk more about that passage in just a moment. Romans 5 3. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we all say, amen, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But then, then Paul adds this really weird next line. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So notice this. You have Peter, James, and Paul, all indicating to us that as Christians we ought to rejoice in our sufferings. Of course, I mentioned a moment ago, Uh, Well, maybe I should mention here, you'll notice that our passage here in verse 6 starts this way. It says, in this you rejoice, or in these things you rejoice. Well, what's he referencing? Well, if you look back, obviously we've been talking about being elect exiles. If you look back in verses 3 all the way down to verse 5, what he says is, all right, you are elect exiles... And before he gets to speaking about what it means to live in a strange life in this world, a difficult life, he begins talking about what it means to live an elect life, a chosen life, one where we've been embraced by God. When we've been embraced by God, what what have we been given? And he gives us three things in the previous passage. He says, in his great mercy, God gave to us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power unto the coming of salvation. And my argument is that what Peter is saying there is, listen, is election worth the suffering that we're going to endure? And Peter's answer is absolutely. Because you see what you get with election? Well, do you see what you get with coming to Christ? You have a living hope. You know what I think he means by that? A hope that doesn't die when we die. Remember Paul's admonition to the Christians there in Thessalonica? <laughs> don't grieve like those who don't have hope. You have a living hope. This life isn't it. You have a lasting inheritance. Not only are we born again into a new family but you're born into a rich family. You've got the richest father ever known to mankind. And he has promised that he is reserving an inheritance for you. Not only that, but it's fascinating how he puts it. And we're not preaching this passage or else I could dig into it. But but he says, God has reserved an inheritance for you. And then he says this, and he's reserved you for the inheritance. And the point is, That we will make it to the end. He who begins a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. So is election worth it? Yes. And now what he's going to do is he's going to say, all right, we've thought about all of this. So now he says, in all this you rejoice. Though now. Do you see the contrast is that these are the things that are reserved for us in the age to come. We can rejoice in them now, but they really are future realities. Things we can only see by faith. But now, for a little while, we endure various trials. So why then should we rejoice in trial? Because Peter bookends this passage, he talks at the beginning, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. And then at the end he says that though you don't see him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are rejoicing with an inexpressible joy. He's bookending the sufferings that we endure with a statement of joy. So why is it that Christians are weird to our world in this way that we rejoice in sufferings? And I would say there are a number of reasons for it. These grievous and various trials, Peter tells us. The first reason I believe that scripture calls us to rejoice in our trials is because trials are given by God. Now, that sounds disturbing to some people, because for some of us, the idea of God allowing us to go through trial just doesn't comport very well. We've got an idea of God as a benevolent father in the sky who's never once going to allow us to go through any difficulty or challenge. And if this is the view that we have of of God, then we've probably watched too many TV preachers, and we've not looked at scripture enough. What scripture tells us is that he is in fact a benevolent father. Have you ever run into a father who quote unquote loves his children too much so that he never allows difficulty in their life? And what happens to such children? Nothing good. You see, our God is indeed a benevolent God. He is a loving God, but he has never promised that our life will be without difficulty. And why then do I say that, in fact, he is in charge of our trials? It's because of this little word here that we saw. In, this, in all this you greatly rejoice, he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That, that phrase, you may have had to suffer, could also be translated and is in some other translations, if necessary. You had to do this. It was necessary. Let me ask you a question. Who decides what's necessary? Who decides what we have to go through? Boy, wouldn't it be a blessing if it was me? Wouldn't it be a blessing if in the morning we said, here's exactly how my day is going to go, and here's what's going to happen, and it's going to be a glorious day? But you know, we don't always get to decide that. One of my favorite passages in Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of the fact that we are to run the race that is set before us. You see, we're to run the race. God put us on a track. He put us on a path, and God's the one who designs our path. You see, our grievous and various trials are always, when we experience them as we are following the Lord, they are always by God's sovereign hand. And if we are going through something, it's because God deemed it necessary. Now, I think that there are some real significant implications that derive from this fact. The first is this. Trials are not evidence of God's displeasure. You see, there are time, if we were to spend our time in Hebrews chapter 12, one of the things you would find is that Hebrews talks about the discipline nature of our Father, of our heavenly Father. And there we almost always get in mind that this discipline is a negative discipline. It's because we've sinned, and so He's going to lead us into difficulty. But if you read Hebrews 12 rightly, you'll find that actually that isn't the case. The discipline can come when we've done wrong. And it's quite possible in some circumstances that the Lord will allow difficulty in our lives because we're engaged in some sort of sinful practice and the Lord is allowing us to experience difficulty so that we might repent. But it is not always evidence of God's displeasure. And let me just pause here and say something that I think is important for all of us to hear. Because there are times, I think, when we experience a difficulty... And there are some very sensitive consciences of saints who say, all right, I'm going through this, I've I've had this diagnosis, or this problems happening within my family, or whatever the situation is, whatever the trial you're going through. And you say, okay, what have I done wrong? And you begin looking introspectively. And you're searching and searching. Let me simply say this. That if, in fact, you are experiencing some difficulty because God is trying to call you to repentance, you will know that he has been calling you to repentance. In other words, you're never going to come upon a situation in which you're going through difficulty. It's because you've been in sin and God hasn't first, by means of the regular means of the word of God and by means of the people of God, confronted you or brought that to mind somewhere along the way. The broader point, then, is this, that God sometimes deems it necessary that we go through difficulty. And when we do so, it's not always because God is displeased with us. Sometimes, and we're going to see this in just a moment, it's because he's very pleased with us. That may seem ironic, but I'll tell you why in just a moment. Second, trials will not overwhelm us. The God who gave you the trial knows you better than you know yourself. Did you know that? That God knows you better than you know yourself? This is why the, scripture, the, the Bible talks about the fact that it is a living word that divides, into, divides things that seem indivisible and gets even into the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Have you ever surprised yourself because of what you were thinking or, or what was going on in your heart? Such things never surprise God. He knows you better than you know yourself. Trials will not overwhelm us because what is God's design? What is God's desire in the trials that he leads us through? Let me simply say, his desire is not to see you drown. He doesn't want to see you fall and stumble and crumble in front of him. He wants to see you encouraged and strengthened through the difficulties that we face. So trials will not overwhelm us. Third, trials are purposeful. Because the God of all grace, this is how the God is referred to in 1st Peter, the God of all grace called you into this trial. The one who knows all things, knows your hearts, knows what you need. He allows this to go through your life. In your, he's, he allows this in your life then we can say with confidence that everything we have in life happens for a purpose. Now, I say that, and there are some of us who are sitting here saying, yes, I know, I know. I have gone through things, and I can look back in the, in the mirror of history, and I can say, I see why God did that, and we can, we can rejoice. But there are other times where we don't know, do we? We look in the mirror, and we say, I'm not sure. There are times where we look today and we say, I'm going through this difficulty that I don't want, that I wouldn't have chosen for myself, but I can see what God's doing in it. But there are other times that you can't see it and you don't know what he's doing. Let me say two things about this. I think there are passages in scripture which help us to think through this. Think of Joseph who went through much. And I don't think he could understand any of it until the final day in which he was able to say, "God, though my brothers meant this for evil, God meant it for good, for the deliverance of an entire nation. But there may not be a time when we come to understand all of what God does in our trials. But let me ask you a question. If you never come to understand why God did what he did or why, why God allowed in your life, what he allowed in your life, does that mean that he didn't have a purpose for it? Boy, wouldn't it be prideful of us to think, I can't think of a reason, therefore there isn't one. What if God knows more than us? And indeed he does. So the second thing I'd say about this, it's not only that God has his purposes even when we can't see them. But we know that God loves us. Do you remember Paul in Romans chapter 8 he, he tells us that though we may go through all kinds of difficulties he who gave himself or he who gave his son to us will he not with him give us all things freely? His point there being, if God gave to us his most precious possession, then how could we doubt his love for us? So, first reason why we should rejoice in trial is because it is from God. He has deemed it necessary that we go through this. That may not be always the easiest thing to embrace, to accept, but it is true. And it leads to great implications as we think about it. There's a second reason, and it comes through the analogy that Peter uses here. Because we rejoice because trials prove and purify our faith. They prove and purify our faith. Look again down in verse 6. He uses a metallurgic analogy. He says, in in all these things you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. So that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You saw that metallurgic analogy he gives there in reference to gold. Perhaps you're familiar with gold. If you are, you know that the way in which you prove whether you actually are holding real gold, uh, there are numerous ways we can prove it today, but in the ancient world, the way you prove that it was true gold was you threw it into a flame that was really, really, really hot. And it would respond in different ways than the fool's sorts of gold. You would be able to prove through the fire of this trial the genuineness of the gold. And what Peter does here is he makes a comparison to our faith. He says trials are like purified gold. In what way? They reveal whether faith is real. You remember Jesus' uh, parable of the soils, don't you? It's powerful parable in which Jesus says the various uh, heart soil conditions Are different from person to person. And so some people just don't receive the word. Other people receive the word. But just for a short period. And then immediately it's gone away. Because there's trials and difficulty. And then there's a third seed which receives it. But when the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches. And other things come in. It crowds out the life. So that it has no fruit. And there's a fourth type of soil. That endures. That bears fruit. Trials are one of the premier ways in which God distinguishes the sheep from the goats. That God shows the reality of our faith. Do you truly believe God? Do you truly believe that he is sovereign over your life and even the trials that you face? If so, then when we are tested, what comes forth? Genuine faith. So trials prove our faith. But I think the second element here is implied more in other passages but I think is implied here and that is that it results in a purer form of faith. Because the other thing you do with a with when you heat up gold is that you're not only able to distinguish whether it's real from whether it's fake, but you're also able to see the impurities in the gold. And they rise to the surface and you're able then by means of that to scoop out the impurities in that goal, to make it purer. And do you know what I believe God does through our trials? Is he purifies our faith. And don't forget the analogy. He fires us up. It's hard. It's painful. And yet, the result of it is a faith that endures. In fact, there are two passages. I mentioned them at the beginning, but... Working through them helps us to see this point even more clearly. Romans 5, Paul, why do we rejoice in our sufferings? He tells us because suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. This hope of eternal life, this hope of the life to come. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you know sometimes the trials of our life are the means by which God begins to unpry our fingers from the things of this world. And to release our grasp from the earthly things we have embraced because he wants to remind us of the eternal hope to which we're called. And if we are distracted by the things of this life, then we're not living both as we ought and in the way that would lead ultimately to a great inheritance in the life to come. James says nearly the identical thing. And he says, I mean, just look at how ridiculous it is. Count it all joy. Like count the entire thing joy when you meet trials of various kinds. James, are you nuts? No, no, he says. I just have an eternal perspective in which I believe these trials are given to me by God for my good. So I can count it joy when I meet trials of various kinds. And then he says this, Christian, you know, you should know this, that the testing of your faith, the the fire that tests your faith, According to Peter, produces steadfastness or endurance, the same sort of language we saw in Paul. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. This is the language of maturity. And what James says is that one of the very means by which God matures his people is by allowing them to go through difficulty. So why should we rejoice in trial? It's because the trials are given by God. They pu- prove and purify our faith. Now, I want, before I move on, I want to actually suggest that there's actually a negative side to this analogy that Peter highlights too. Because trials are unlike purified gold in some ways. And he makes that evident here. Because he says that it's worth more than gold. And this gold perishes, though refined by fire. His point is that this gold, though taken care of, though, uh, though crafted in such a way that it's the purest form of gold, here's what Peter says, it won't endure. And I think the two analogies then are this, the first, proven faith is better than gold. There are not a lot of things in this world that are worth more than gold, right? Right? I mean, especially in Peter's day, this was was the the premier form of currency. If you had gold, you could show that you had wealth. You could buy anything you wanted with gold. And even today, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, I've got a gold coin. So I guess I'm moving, so I'm probably safe. But but I've got this gold coin. It's just this tiny thing. But somebody gave it to me as... uh, They gave it to me. I was thankful for it. And then they told me how much this little dinky gold coin, pure gold apparently, or 99.9%, whatever it is, how much this thing was worth. And I was shocked because gold is incredibly valuable in its pure form. But here's what Peter says. If you think that's valuable, let me tell you something more valuable. It's a proven faith, a faith that has showed itself to be real faith by the trials we experience. And you say, why is that more precious? It's because of the second point. Proven faith will never fail you. Now, some uh, find fault with Peter here because he says, listen, uh, gold is going to perish. And if you know anything about uh, About the various elements, you know that gold is a stable element. It will never perish. Except that there will one day become a flame that will consume the entirety of this world. And let me just simply say, in the life to come, gold will not be valuable. In fact, we call it concrete. (laughs) The streets will be paved with gold, if you recall the uh, book of Revelation. It'll be plenteous. That's not valuable there. But do you know what is valuable there? A proven faith. And if you, if you remember, just recently he said, Listen, God has given to you an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, that is imperishable, unfading, and is reserved for heaven, reserved in heaven for you. So here's what he's saying. Your faith will produce for you reward. And indeed, that's the next point. We rejoice not only because we know that God is sovereign over our trials and because our trials both prove and purify our faith, but the third reason we rejoice is because trials result in eternal reward. We see this at the end of the passage here. It says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a number of individuals who interpret this passage to mean that when the Lord comes, we will give him praise, glory, and honor. But in fact, we could work through 1 Peter if we had the time, and I could show you how... Each one of these is given to believers. That at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be praise, glory, and honor given to those who have an enduring faith. First Peter chapter 5 tells us that we will share in the glory of our Father. We will share in the glory of Christ when he comes. And when we think of that, we recognize that though gold is precious in this life, there's an inheritance that will never end, and God has reserved it for us. Let me mention one more reason. And this, the timing of the reward is at the return of Jesus. But let me mention a fourth reason. We also rejoice because trials are temporary. Did you see that at the beginning of our passage? In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while. For a little while. In fact, if you were to turn all the way back to chapter 5, verse 8, Peter tells us there at at the end of the passage, he tells us that the Lord is going to return and after you have suffered, actually it's verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, God himself will come and he'll restore all things and he will strengthen you and establish you. He begins the letter and he ends the letter with a recognition that our time in exile is for a little while. Now, How long is a little while? You know, a little while is a bit of a relative term, but you know, I think uh, most in this room who have, uh, gotten more advanced in age, and I'll count myself among them these days. I'm 40 years old now, and so as I think of that, I was 20 last week, I think. Doesn't it seem that way? Time flies. Hey, Pastor Ken was just mentioning that uh, I'm going down to North Carolina, and somebody was asking me right before the service, How long have you been at DBTS? And, you know, if I hadn't counted it out, I might say, well, just a few years. But it turns out it was eight years. This life lasts for a moment. Peter's, in just a few verses, going to say, All flesh is as grass, and all is glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. What he's contrasting is the shortness of human life, the brevity that we experience. Even if the Lord gives you 120 years in this life, it's a moment. One of my students was telling me that he was listening to a TV preacher whose point in this passage, he was saying, God's only going to give you trial for a little while. He's only going to give it to you maybe for a couple months, maybe for a year, and that's all God's going to give it to you because it's going to last for a little while. That's not Peter's point. Peter's point is that your life here is just a little while. And God may give you a trial that lasts from the moment you're saved until the moment you die. And we say that's not fair. And I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about this a lot. Because I feel like my life is a bit unfair. Unfair. In this sense, that in terms of the trials and difficulties I've gone through, it's been, I mean, I I feel like I've lived a life of roses. I mean, it's just, and one of my best friends, he has Crohn's. And he's on his last medication. What I mean by that is his body continues to get used to the medication that they give to him. And he's on the last one they know about that could potentially help him. And pretty soon his body will get used to that. And then he's not going to have help with his groans. He's my age. And he has gone through tr- I mean, just... And, and his wife has fibromyalgia. And I'm just thinking, Man, Lord, what trials this man has walked through. And yet, he's one of the most faithful men I know. He loves the Lord. And he's accepted that this is God's hand in his life. But here's the thing. So, let's say... My friend Pete is able to make it till 80, and he suffers that whole time, and he enters into eternity. Do you think it will be worth it? Do you think his proven faith will be rewarded? I do. And I think sometimes we, all, we think that the rewards that the Lord is reserving in heaven are merely reserved for those who do ministry or do this, that. No, it is reserved for those who are faithful to him. And that faithful to him may mean that you endured a trial for years and years and you were faithful to him in that trial. I'm convinced that when we enter into eternity and we see the rewards people get, we might think, well, what did that person get reward for? I didn't see them do anything, but you know what they did? They were faithful to God in the midst of suffering and trial and difficulty, and they honored him and praised him with their life. In this short period of time, this little while, they looked beyond it. Now, obviously, we understand that there are times, there are trials that seem like an eternity. And what Peter's calling us to remember is that this is a little while. Just a little while. They're temporary. And then the glory that will come after, how long will that last? Incomparable. Incomparable. Seconds in comparison. And probably milliseconds in comparison. Let me mention one more reason to rejoice in trial. We rejoice because trials lead us to Christ. Notice what he says here at the end. Though you have not seen him. This is verse number 8. Though you have not seen him. And he's in reference to Jesus. And I think what he's saying is, listen. Listen. You've not seen him. And remember, this is Peter speaking, so he did see him. He's talking to people who haven't seen him, and he says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And then he says, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, look, you've not seen Jesus. But you believe in him, or you, you, you trust in him. And though you do not now see him, and this is the critical component for us, because when we're going through trials, what is it going to require of us? Faith. We're going to have to say, God, I believe you, I trust you in the midst of this, because I can't see why you're doing it, or what's, what's going to happen on the other end. I don't know any of that. But uh, what I do know is I know you, And I I love you, Lord. And I believe in you. And so, do you know what this produces in us? Even in the midst of the most grievous trial, it produces a joy that is inexpressible. I don't even know how to share it. I don't know how to tell people about it. And maybe when the unbeliever comes to me and says, how could you not be just broken over this situation? I don't know fully how to tell them, but I can tell them it's because I know that there is one in heaven who is sovereign over my trials and who will reward me for all the faithfulness that I show in this. Is that going to take faith? It is. And Peter here is saying to his congregation, he's saying to them, I am thrilled because though you do not see him, You see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with an inexpressible joy that is filled with the glory that you will have when he returns. And so Peter ends, it is for this reason that you are even now receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I think what he's saying here is, again, coming back to the theme, that our trials show the genuineness of your faith. How do you know you really believe in the Lord when you go through trial and you see him who is invisible and you believe and trust him? So coming to a conclusion then, why do we rejoice in trials? Because they are given by God. He has deemed it necessary if he allows it in your life. They do prove and purify our faith, strengthening us. They will be rewarded. They're temporary. And they lead us to Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over your trials. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he has purposes for what he's doing. Trust him. Father, I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that you were always good. And I thank you that one day when you return, we will rejoice to see all of the things you did in those trials that we could never fathom or comprehend. Lord, we can't imagine the grace that you've given to us. That we not only can have an inheritance in the life to come, but that you are right now sovereign over our lives, guiding us to that final day. I pray for your people here today, that they would show the type of faith that you will reward in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.